Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. As always, it is a blessing to be here with you guys to join in worship and praise of our Lord and Savior, and now to turn our attention to uh, His Holy Word. Today, we are going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, and the study that we began two weeks ago, looking at Jesus' Olivet Discourse that He gave to His disciples as they departed the temple. Today will be part three of our study. Um, If you haven't been here for part one and part two, that's okay. We'll do a small little recap, uh, but you can also go online. I would encourage you, we put our messages online. You can go to our website or follow us on our Facebook page, and you can uh, listen to the uh, previous portions of this. I do hope that you've all been tracking with me as we've kind of slowed down and we've made our way through this very important teaching that Jesus gives referring to things and events that would take place in the future. This teaching Jesus gives focuses in upon the answer to a few questions the disciples had asked Jesus after he made a very bold and surprising statement to the disciples as they were exiting the temple. Recall, if you've been with us, that the disciples, they were in awe of the temple and the the massive stones that were used in King Herod's renovation of the temple. And as they were in awe of the temple, Jesus declared to them, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in response to Jesus' statement, the disciples asked Jesus, teacher, But when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? The disciples asked a when question, and they asked a a what question. Hey, the disciples wanted to know when the temple would be destroyed, when the stones would be completely dismantled, and one would not be left upon another. But they also wanted to know what sign would precede these things. And now we know from Matthew and Mark's parallel account of this text that these things that Luke writes about, uh, is not limited to just the destruction of the temple. For the disciples also asked Jesus, what sign would there be before his coming? And as well, they asked about a sign uh, that would indicate the end of the age. And so Jesus spoke uh, uh, in regard to those things. And thus far, we focused in upon answering the what question. Last week, we looked at what signs would be associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the age. Jesus spoke of religious deception, wars and commotions, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against other kingdoms, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and fearful sights and signs from heaven. And we noted in our study that these things have actually been going on throughout history. Uh, And so just because we see some of these things happening, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should be going around saying, oh, the end is, is now, you know, the end is coming. Jesus said that there would be a delay, that the end wouldn't come immediately. We also noted how in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke of some of these signs as the beginning of sorrows or other translations, they translated as the beginning of birth pains. Okay, labor pains. And so we come to the understanding that while, you know, an individual occurrence of these events may not mean that the end is here, nonetheless, like birth pains, like labor pains, the closer we get to the time of delivery, the more frequent these things will occur and the more intense 
these events will become. Just like when a baby is about to be delivered, the labor pains become more frequent and they become more intense. So we look at these and we've noted that these events, while in and of themselves aren't a precursor that, oh, this automatically means Jesus is coming back and it's the end of the age, but as we notice them, the frequency of them increasing, we see the uh, intensity of them increasing, it ought to raise our uh, suspicions. It ought to get us to notice those things. In our text today, we're going to see Jesus give more signs that will precede his coming, but he will also answer the question of when. When the temple would be destroyed and, and not one stone would be left upon it. Today we're going to be doing a little bit of a, of a history lesson, okay? So I hope that you guys are okay with history because we're going to be looking at uh, some historical events that took place, how they fit within the historical context of the Bible and this particular Bible prophecy. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 28. This is part three of our study through Jesus' Olivet Discourse, uh, where we're going to be looking at uh, the desolation and the descent of the Son of Man. Will you all rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word? I'm going to read through our text in uh, my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. I just want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. And so Luke records the following in chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led, led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity we have to yet again open your word, yet again look at this Olivet discourse that you gave. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us um, just wisdom and understanding uh, to this text, that we might glean the important truths from it, and that we might grow uh, by it as well. Lord, we thank you. Uh, that you are here with us today, and I pray that you would just continue, uh, your Holy Spirit would just continue to lead and guide us uh, in your truth. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Last week, as part of our study of the Olivet Discourse, I mentioned some principles or guidelines that we need to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible, and specifically when interpreting Bible prophecy. And I mentioned the importance of looking to the Scriptures first and foremost, that we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we're going to be looking at a couple of different texts 
this morning. Obviously, we're starting here in Luke, but we're going to look around a couple different places. And so, so, you know, some of your Bibles have these ribbons. You know, you can actually maybe use these ones uh, today. Uh, If you have an old bulletin in your Bible, you can maybe use those to kind of hold your spot, okay? I mentioned as well the importance is of not making definitive statements on matters that the scriptures don't make definitive statements on, especially when it comes to types and symbols. We're going to be looking at some possible types and symbology in our text today and some of the cross-references that we look at. Also, we talked about how the simplest interpretation usually is the one that, uh, excuse me, is usually, the simplest interpretation is to take things literally when symbolism and allegory are not obvious, okay? We shouldn't just jump uh, to symbolism and allegory uh, when interpreting things that could be clearly understood as literal events, while at the same time we have to balance that out with understanding. Jesus did use symbolism. He did use allegory. He did use uh, types and foreshadows. And then lastly, we spoke about how the, some Bible prophecies will have a, what we would refer to as dual fulfillments or multiple fulfillments, that it is possible for prophecies to speak of events that will transpire on multiple occasions, or how certain events will seem to fulfill a certain prophecy, but they will really be a foreshadowing of what is to come at a later time. In our text today, we are going to talk about that very thing, how something could be part of fulfilled prophecy, but at the same time still speak of a yet-to-be-fulfilled aspect of that prophecy, a dual fulfillment of prophecy in history. And so for those of you who like to take notes or outline our text, I know there are some of you out there, okay, we're going to break up our text into two major sections, real simply. Okay, in verses 20 through 24, we're going to be looking at Luke's description of the desolation of Jerusalem, okay, the desolation of Jerusalem. And then in verses 25 through 28, we will then look at Luke's description of the descent of Jesus, okay, the descent of Jesus. In Luke's description of the de- desolation of Jerusalem, he's going to answer the question of when, okay? He, in his description of the descent of Jesus, he will mention more signs that pertain to the what question. So let's dive in and see what Luke has to say about the desolation of Jerusalem by looking at verses 20 through 24 again. Luke writes, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, these verses in Luke's gospel are very unique. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a record of Jesus' teaching known as the Olivet Discourse, Luke is the only one to record for us the information that's 
given to us here in verses 20 through 24. If you were to read a side-by-side account of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, record of Jesus' teaching, you will see that while Matthew and Mark stick to the same points of Jesus' teaching, Luke was led of the Spirit to record a different aspect of Jesus' teaching that isn't found in Matthew and in Mark's teaching. And this has led to some confusion Okay, and has led to some uh, people coming to certain conclusions that are problematic. Some look at what Luke records here in verses 20 through 24, and they assume that he is speaking about the same thing that Matthew and Mark talk about in their gospel. Okay? But a close look at them will show that they are definitely speaking about different events that were both still yet to come. In these verses, Luke, I believe, is writing about an event that would transpire in the not-too-distant future for his first-century audience. But Matthew and Mark speak of a different event. And we'll take some time later on in our study to look at what Matthew and Mark's accounts have to say. But for now, we're going to focus in upon what Luke has to say for us. And so Luke begins verse 20 by warning the disciples about the coming desolation of the city of Jerusalem. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Hey, this is not the first time that Luke has recorded Jesus mentioning the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. You may recall, if you've been with us for a couple months, that when Jesus triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey, identifying himself as their Messiah, Jesus also mentioned it at that time. While all the people were rejoicing and praising and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, we know that Jesus was quite sorrowful. Luke records how Jesus at that time, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because... You did not know the time of your visitation. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem was something that Jesus knew was going to happen, and it came to pass primarily because they, referring to the Jews, did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, they did not know that Jesus, their Messiah, had indeed come to them. They failed to recognize Jesus for who he was, the Son of God and their Messiah. And instead of receiving him and worshiping him, they would end up rejecting him and crucifying him upon a Roman cross. And their destruction was going to come upon them because of this great failure of theirs. They did not know that when Jesus came into the city on the back of a donkey that it was their day. The day that God had predetermined as the one where Jesus would present himself as their Messiah. A day that was meant to be a day of great peace would end up pointing to a day of great destruction. Jesus taught that when they see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, that the people were to flee to the mountains to depart from the city and those out in the country that they should not enter in. You have to understand, okay, this would be the exact opposite of what you would 
typically do in that case. If you start to see enemy forces coming toward your city, the natural instinct at that time would be to flee into the walled cities for protection. You see, outside of the walled city, you have no protection. And so what would end up happening is you would be caught outside the city walls, you'd have no means of defense, and you would quickly and easily either be taken captive or more than likely end up being slaughtered by the enemy forces. And so the natural instinct, you see enemy forces coming, you're going to retreat into the defense, your stronghold. And Jesus says, do not do that. Okay? Do not do that. Jesus also said, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing, those who had small children, basically, because it would be especially challenging for them to run and, and flee from the surrounding armies and find the support and help they would need. Now, we do not have a uh, written record of the destruction of the temple within the Bible, where we're given a historical um, account of it. But we do have historical records that let us know of the details of the fall of the city and of the destruction of the temple. I want to kind of share with you guys how that all transpired so that you would understand what's happening here. And so it was the year 66 A.D., Less than 40 years after Jesus' arrival, after his time here, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, that the Jews endeavored to separate from the rule of the Roman Empire in an attempt to gain the peace and the sovereignty that they so desperately longed for. You see, the Jews, they were fed up with Rome and how they were being treated by the Romans. They greatly protested the taxes Rome was levying upon them and how the Romans would routinely attack Jewish citizens without any repercussions to themselves. They were basically bullying everybody, and the Jews were sick of it. And in response to their, they had this revolt, and in response to their revolt, Roman authorities actually plundered the temple. They went into the temple, they plundered it, and they arrested numerous senior Jewish uh, figures. But instead of that calming people down, okay, and quieting the revolt, it only served to enrage the people more. And it led to a widespread rebellion. The Syrian army uh, was brought in to quell the unrest, but they were unsuccessful. And so what ended up happening was the Jews, they set up a provisional government of their own, and the stage was set. Roman general Vespasian was given four legions, and he was tasked by the then emperor Nero with crushing the rebellion. Vespasian invaded Galilee in the year 67 AD, and within several months he had claimed major Jewish strongholds in that area for himself and for Rome. The zealot rebels who were driven from Galilee along with thousands of refugees traveled south and they arrived in Jerusalem creating tension between those who lived in Jerusalem and the rebel factions. In the year 69 AD, Vespasian was called to Rome and he was appointed the new emperor of Rome. Okay, Nero had, had lost it. Okay, the guy was wacko cuckoo. And they're like, we need to get rid of this guy to save the state. And so they said, hey, Vespasian, you're going to be the new emperor. And so what ended up happening is he left behind his son Titus to besiege Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And Titus did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do, okay? Titus built a large embankment 
all around the city, just like Jesus described. And then after seven months of laying siege to the city, it finally fell. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about the fall of the city with great detail. And interestingly enough, we find that Titus, the Roman general, actually didn't want to destroy the temple at all. Josephus writes of how Titus actually gathered many of his commanders, the commanders of these different legions that he was overseeing and different leaders, councils. He called them together and asked them about what they should do as when they mounted their attack upon the temple. And some counseled Titus to treat it like any other building under the rules of war and to demolish it. And then others suggested that they only demolish it if the Jewish forces took up arms within it. If they fled from it and they didn't use it as a place to fight from, then Rome would then spare it. And this actually was uh, further supported. This idea was pitched to him. Basically, they were saying, hey, if we do end up destroying it, we will at least be able to blame the Jews because we'll be able to say, hey, we had to attack them. We had to destroy it because they treated it like a citadel. They said it's a holy place, but they, they were you know, mounting up a, an attack from there. And so we laid waste to it. You know, it's not our fault that we destroyed this incredible building. And so that had some traction. But Josephus states that Titus had no interest whatsoever in any proposition, any proposal that would end up with the destruction of the temple. And this is why it says that he said that because it would be a mischief to the Romans themselves as it would be an ornament to their government while it continued. Titus looked at the temple and understood the magnificence of it. Everybody knew how glorious this temple was, the, the, the splendor of it all. And he's like, you know what? Let's not touch it. Let's get in there, keep it intact, and we're going to claim it for ourselves. And this will be one of our crown jewels of look what we have taken upon ourselves. This is our temple now. And so they would claim it for themselves. It would be this prized um, treasure. And so that was Titus's plan. He wanted to keep the temple intact as much as possible so that Rome could claim it for themselves. And his orders went out that the temple was not to be destroyed. Nonetheless, on the day in which they stormed the temple, the Jewish historian Josephus tells of a random soldier that snatched up some materials in the court that had been set to fire and then proceeded to have another soldier lift him up and set fire to a golden window through which there were passages to the rooms that surrounded the temple. And when Titus got word of the fire that was spreading through the outer rooms of the temple, he rose up in great haste and he ran into the temple hoping that he may be able to quench the fire before it made its way into the inner temple. He ordered troops to put out the fire, but they were in the midst of fighting off the Jewish rebels at the same time. And what ended up happening is that they were unable to stop the fire. Despite all of Titus's efforts, he was unable to successfully put out the fire, and the temple ended up being burned down to the ground. Now, the temple itself was a, a sight to behold. We've talked about this already. Josephus, this is what he actually writes in his own recording of the temple. He says, it was the most admirable of all the works that we have seen or heard of both for its curious structure and its magnitude, and also for the vast wealth bestowed upon it, as well as for the glorious reputation it had for its holiness. This place was, you know, 
sought out by not just the Jews. People looked at this and was like, this is an, just an amazing thing. Now, part of the wealth that was bestowed upon it was gold. Okay? We read that the temple was overlaid with gold throughout. And as the temple burned down, what happened is that the gold was then melted down into liquid form and it seeped down in between the cracks of these massive stones within the temple. And after the fire was put out and the Jews no longer were a threat, the Romans went in and unchurned every single stone in the temple in order to gather the gold that had melted down through the cracks. And in doing so, they fulfilled this prophecy of Jesus that he spoke about in Luke 19 when entering into the city of Jerusalem. And here again in Luke 21, when talking about the desolation that was coming. Not one stone was left upon another as the Romans gathered up all of the gold that had been melted down in between the cracks because of this fire that wasn't even supposed to happen. And so we understand that what Jesus said and described here in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24, it was fulfilled in the year 70 AD with you know, Titus going in and destroying the city, burning it down, tearing every stone apart from one another. Jesus described the days of Jerusalem's fall as days of vengeance. The word vengeance speaks of doing justice. It's the noun form of the verb that means to execute justice. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple were part of God's divine justice upon the Jews for their part in rejecting God and rejecting his son that he sent to them. Jesus also described how there would be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. The word distress, it speaks of troubling times. And the word wrath, it speaks of God's divine judgment being inflicted upon the wicked. He said that the people would fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Again, Josephus actually writes in his The Wars of the Jews that the total number of those slain from the siege and the attack upon the city totaled 1.1 million people that were destroyed. And then he also records and states that some 97,000 were carried away captive and distributed to other nations. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't know if you're familiar with history, you might be thinking, well, that number seems rather large. That's an abnormal sized population for the city of Jerusalem, don't you think? And I'd say, yeah, I, I agree. That is not what the normal population of the city should have been. The city wouldn't normally have that many people living within it, and that's just it. The people didn't listen to Jesus' warning here. They didn't listen to his word. Jesus told them to flee the city, to not enter into the city, but that is exactly what the people did. The city swelled with people that normally didn't have residence within the city. People had fled from other areas that had been attacked, and the people were looking to Jerusalem to protect them. Josephus also writes that the Roman forces, very cleverly, I believe, okay, not to give them too much credit, but they didn't surround the city until the Jewish Feast of Unleavened Bread because they knew that all of these other people would come into the city of Jerusalem at that time to worship and participate in the feast. And so the city would swell with people. Everybody would be concentrated into one place. And as soon as they did that, Titus surrounded them and trapped them within the city. Josephus writes, 
and tells how the armies laid siege to the city. It quickly ran out of food supplies and they were stuck there. Famine happened. People started dying off rather quickly. Okay? Remember, the city was under siege for seven months. Okay? The people were dying from starvation on the inside. Once Rome broke through the walls, it was a quick mop-up job after that of laying waste to the weak forces within the city. People were slain with swords, but many died from starvation before the walls of the city were even breached. Over a million were killed, nearly another 100,000 taken away into captivity, all because they did not listen to the word of Jesus Christ. They didn't listen to Jesus' word, and it brought death to them. If they would have listened to Jesus and done what he had said and fled to the mountains and got as far away from the city as possible and not come in from the country and gone into the city thinking that it would be safe, they would have lived. It's so sad to think of the lives that were lost because they did not heed the warning that Jesus Christ so clearly gave. And I think of that, and I think it's so sad, and yet it reminds me, and it should remind us of a very important truth for us to consider. The people didn't listen to Jesus' words, and it led to their death, but if they had listened to him, they would have lived. And I believe the same is true for us. If we will not listen to and heed the words of Christ, it will end in our destruction. Okay? But if we do listen to and heed the words of Christ, it will lead to life everlasting. Jesus calls us to repent and to believe upon him for the salvation of our souls. And we have the choice. We can either listen to his word and heed it, or we can ignore it and reject it and end up facing the consequences of our own sinful choices. May we be those who learn the lesson here of the importance of listening to and heeding the word of God. God told them he, before it even happened, when this starts to happen, get out of here. What did they do when they started to happen? They all filled the city. And it was to their destruction. Now, Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? What this means is actually exactly is uncertain. Different people have different interpretations. I'm going to suggest to you what I believe. I believe it would seem to be pointing to the fact that the city of Jerusalem will be overrun and ruled over by Gentiles for a certain amount of time, okay? A time, the time of the Gentiles, whatever that may be. Now, the trampling of the city of Jerusalem really began way back in the year 586 B.C. It was in the year 586 B.C. that the Babylonians came in. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and they destroyed the first temple that was built by Solomon. Okay, and the people in Jerusalem were taken away captive 70 years. You guys know that portion of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, okay, uh, Jeremiah. Uh, those Old Testament prophets, prophets talk about this event in the 70-year uh, exile, okay? The people were taken away and never again had complete control and autonomy rule over and from the city of Jerusalem, okay? Even after the Babylonian captivity had ended and the people returned to the city of Jerusalem and they rebuilt it, the city and the region was still under the power and control of the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? In fact, from the year 586 B.C., when Babylon took over the city, it has been ruled by and controlled by various Gentile superpower empires. It was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then the Greeks who took over after them, then it was the Romans, 
after the Romans, okay, it was the Byzantine Empire, then the uh, Islamic and Christian Crusades that took place after that, then followed by the Muslims again, then the Ottoman Empire rose, followed by the British Empire. Throughout history, Jerusalem has been under control of Gentiles. But that all changed back on June 10, 1967. June 10th, 1967, this is the date that marked the end of what's called the Six-Day War. Israel fought against a coalition of Arab states, primarily Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And in the process, they gained complete control over the entire city of Jerusalem, which prior to then was partly held under Jordanian control, the West Bank. Okay? Jordan controlled that. They Israel did not have complete control over the city of Jerusalem. Israel fought against them. Uh, they took control of the entire city. In addition to the entire city of Jerusalem, Israel seized the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip that had been under Egyptian control and the Golan Heights that were previously under the control of Syria. And this was the first time in 2000, over 2,500 years that Israel ruled and reigned over all the city of Jerusalem. Now, does that mean that the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled now that Israel once again rules over Jerusalem? I don't know. I don't want to make a definitive statement. I do think it rather interesting to consider the fact that something that hasn't been the case for the last 2,500 plus years all of a sudden, in our lives, is something. Okay? 1967. I wasn't born yet, but I wasn't born too long after that. Okay? I doubt many of you were born. Some of you were alive in 1967, but not very many of you. Um, you know, I think at the very least, it ought to perk our interest, and it ought to make us pay attention to what's going on. Now, it's interesting that Jesus gives this time marker for us saying that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It interests me because it seems that, you know, the immediate context as we study and look at Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 24, is that Jesus is speaking about the fall of the city of Jerusalem. And we know that occurred in 70 AD. But by making this statement here about the times of the Gentiles, it would seem that perhaps Jesus had a yet future event in mind as well. And that brings us to the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark's Gospels concerning what they recorded as part of Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Instead of referring to the surrounding of the city of Jerusalem by armies as something that they should be watching for, both Matthew and Mark record how Jesus spoke about something called the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. I want you guys real quick, turn with me to the book of Mark. Okay, it's the next book over to the left. Unless you've got a Japanese Bible, then it's to the right, right? Sogo-san, to the right. <laughs> Mark chapter 13. This is Mark's parallel account of this same teaching, the Olivet Discourse. And I want you to note what... Mark says here in Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read down to verse 20. I'll have it up on the screens, but I think it's good to look at that. Look at it yourselves in your Bible, okay? 
says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. This is a parenthetical insert by Mark. He's saying, hey, pay attention. This is real important, okay? Let the reader understand. Jesus says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in on the... In, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake... Whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, there is some similar wording in here that may lead us to think that Mark is talking about, oh, the same thing. But upon a closer look, we come to understand that these are totally different events that Mark and Luke are, are talking about. There are existing parallels in how people should respond to these events. In both cases, people are exhorted to flee to the mountains right? And in both events, woe is pronounced over those who are pregnant and nursing kids, because in both events, it would be difficult to run and escape carrying, you know, the extra weight of an unborn baby or a recently born baby. But the mention of the abomination of desolation is quite different from the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies. The abomination of desolation is something that Daniel prophesied about back in Daniel chapter 9. And so if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 9, you can. We will have the verses up here on the screen. Daniel chapter 9, if you were with us a couple months ago, um, you may recall in our study of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, how it correlated with the 70 weeks prophecy of uh, Daniel that's found in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In our study of that portion, we noted how the 70 weeks were not to be understood as weeks, as days, Okay? but weeks of years. They were 70 sets of seven uh, time frames, and we understood them to be years. And so the time frame is actually 77-year sets, or 490 years had been determined for Daniel, his people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews, right? And for Daniel's holy city. What's his holy city? Jerusalem, okay? And so, the, uh, in our study of that portion, we noted as well how the 70 weeks, okay, they were broken up into three sections, okay? The angel Gabriel, who was speaking to Daniel at this time, giving him this information, declared, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There was going to be seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and then one final week for a total of 70. Now, in our study of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, we noted how Jesus entered into the city at the end of those 69 
weeks of years, 483 years after the command to restore and build the walls that's actually spoken of in the book of Nehemiah. We can go there and read. We know when it happened. 483 years later, we count it down, and it's Jesus's triumphal entry entering into the city of Jerusalem at the culmination of the 69 weeks. Okay, But then he was cut off. Seventy weeks were determined for Daniel's people, the Jews, and for his city, Jerusalem. But the, the time was cut off at the 69th week. There still remains one more week for the Jews and for the city of Jerusalem before the end of sins comes, before the everlasting righteousness is ushered in, and before the anointing of the Most High. And we look around, when we're not living in everlasting righteousness right now, right? We, we haven't, the, Jesus has not been anointed as the Most High. He's not ruling and reigning right now upon earth. So we understand that this hasn't happened yet. There's still one more week to come. And this seven-year period, this final week, is what many refer to as the tribulation or sometimes people call it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's even referred to as the day of the Lord, spoken of by many Old Testament prophets. It is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it states, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The 62 weeks, they followed the seven weeks. And so at the end of the 69 weeks total, 62 plus seven, the Messiah would be cut off. This cutting off is explained by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53. There he declares, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah is referencing the sacrifice of Jesus and how he was murdered alongside criminals for our transgressions. But he was buried with the rich, for he was buried in Joseph of Marimathea's own tomb, a wealthy and prominent man of that day. The phrase, but not for himself, is better understood in some other translations as it states, he will have nothing. The Messiah will come, but he will not receive his kingdom. He will be cut off, okay? empty-handed, so to say. Daniel describes in verse 27 that after the Messiah is cut off, that there will arise a prince okay, that will confirm a covenant with many for one week, that final week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This one-week covenant is the final week of the 70-week prophecy. During this final week of years, the prince okay, will make a covenant with Israel, presumably to protect them from their enemies, and he will also permit them to rebuild their temple. Okay? But halfway through the seven-year period, this prince will break his agreement with them, and he will bring an end to the sacrifices in the temple, and he will commit what is known as the abomination of desolation. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 describes for us what will happen. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about the day of the coming of Jesus Christ, and we read, he says, "'Let no one deceive you by any means.'" For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This man of sin, the son of perdition, will be the Antichrist. 
The Antichrist will help Israel rebuild the temple, but once it is complete, he will enter into the holy place in the temple and he will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. This is what I believe to be the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And Mark writes, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing where it ought not, then it's time to flee, time to get out, right? Well, where is this place it shouldn't be standing? It's the holy place of the temple. How do we know? Because Matthew's gospel tells us that. If we look at Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, this is what he says. He writes, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, okay? That is a clear reference to the temple according to Matthew's gospel. And so the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and things will seem good for the first three and a half years of this seven-year period. The Israelites will get another temple built. There will seemingly be peace in the land of Israel, something that really hasn't happened since the days of Solomon. But all that is going to change halfway through the seventh week. Mark records how in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. This time of tribulation coincides with the events that are written of in the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 18. If you want to know what it will be like during the second half of the seven-year tribulation, just read the book of Revelation, okay? Time won't permit us to dive into it today, but suffice it to say, it's not something that you want to witness firsthand. You do not want to be part of that second half of the tribulation, also referred to as the Great Tribulation. And so, it would appear that perhaps what we have here in Luke 21 and Mark 13 is somewhat of a dual fulfillment type of prophecy. The city of Jerusalem was indeed surrounded by armies and laid waste, and the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD. But the city will still yet have another week to come, a time where the city will once again be surrounded by armies during the tribulation. Something I believe that may be pointing to the battle of Armageddon when all the kings of the earth are gathered their armies for an all-out assault on Jerusalem as discussed in Revelation chapter 16. Okay? Also, the prophet Zechariah speaks of this in Zechariah chapter 14 in reference to the day of the Lord that is coming. Zechariah declares, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Zechariah continues to talk about how the Lord will come, Jesus will come, and he will set his foot down upon the Mount of Olives. It'll split in half. Okay, I'm getting too far ahead of myself, okay? Let's reel it back a little bit, okay? So Zechariah is going to talk about that, and then right after that, that Jesus is coming, all right? But that's the second half of our text, so we're going to, let's go back to that, okay? We looked at the desolation of Jerusalem, how it was fulfilled in 70 AD, how it still may have yet a future fulfillment in the connection of the tribulation. But let's quickly look at what Luke records for us about the descent of Jesus in verses 25 through 28. Again, back in the book of Luke, it says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now, 
Here in these verses, Jesus gives the final signs as to what to expect immediately preceding his return. So he's back to answering the what question pertaining to the signs of his coming and the end of the age. And note with me real fast the signs that he mentions. There's three of them, okay? First of all, Jesus says in verse 25 that there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars. At the end of verse 26, he says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, that word shaken, it carries the idea of something being distressed. And so we see that there will be great distress in the heavens. Okay, these distresses in the heavens that will take place right before the coming of the Lord, they've actually long been prophesied by the prophets. Isaiah the prophet spoke some 700 years before Christ's first coming in Isaiah chapter 13, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Verse 13 says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Eh? If you're visiting with us this morning, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Joel prophesied, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Zechariah spoke concerning the day of the Lord, saying it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, the lights will diminish. These distresses in the heavens, they will occur immediately before the return of Christ and they will be a sign for all to see, for all to know that the day of the Lord is at hand. Number two, Jesus mentioned that there would also be distresses of nations upon the earth. All the nations of the earth will see what is happening right before the coming of the Lord, and they will be greatly distressed. The turmoil of those days will be like the tossing of the waves and rough seas, constant turnover, constant pounding, wave after wave will be completely overwhelming. And then third and finally, Jesus states that the hearts of men will be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. And so we see not only distress in the heavens, but distress in the nations and ultimately distress in the hearts of all men. The world will be falling apart. <laughs> it will be a world of chaos and distress, death destructions and upheaval will be throughout. It will be the worst this world has ever seen. And just when it seems like it couldn't get any worse as fear and uncertainty surrounds all, that is when Jesus Christ will descend. That is when the whole earth will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power in great glory. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth, okay? That is a truth we proclaim, a truth we believe. The phrase Son of Man is a messianic title that actually comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel prophesied, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. His coming is described as being in the clouds with great power and glory. It will be an incredible sight for all to see. Revelation 1, 7 describes the coming of the Lord, stating, Behold, He's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. 
Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so. Amen. The coming of the Lord will not be some secret event that only certain people will see or know about. The coming of the Lord will be seen by all. Every eye will see him. The book of Revelation tells us that. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth during his second coming, it will not be as he did during his first coming. During his first coming, Jesus did not come as a conquering king, but he came as a suffering servant. But all that will change in his second coming. In his second coming, Jesus will be coming as that conquering king the Jews were waiting for and hoping for. Revelation describes it this way, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judged and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming on a white horse as a conquering king, making war against the nations. His eyes are going to be like a flame of fire, and out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. It will be, he will wipe them all out. Verse 28 concludes with, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now we have to understand this, you guys. We have to understand something here, the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He's speaking about the final week of the Jews, the final week of their holy city, Jerusalem, okay? He's speaking about that 70th week where the abomination of desolation takes place. I believe this exhortation, while it is a beautiful one that we can be encouraged by as we see certain things happening, we can look up and know that our redemption draws near. I believe that this specific exhortation is not for us, the church, but it is for the Jews and those who get saved during the seven-year tribulation. I do not believe that we will be around during the seven-year tribulation. But don't feel like you're going to miss out on this awesome display of the Lord's return. I think you and I are going to be right in the thick of it when Jesus returns. How so? Did you notice, as I read from Revelation chapter 19, that Jesus wasn't coming by himself? That he wasn't coming alone? There with him will be the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that will follow him on white horses. Well, who makes up these armies in heaven? Who is dressed in these fine white linens? Well, Revelation tells us the answer just a few verses prior to this in verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 19. Revelation 19 describes a great multitude in heaven singing praises to God right before Christ's coming. And in verse 7 it reads, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Let me ask you this, church, okay? Who's the bride of Christ? Who is his wife? It's the church. 
It's the church, right? Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us that the bride of Christ is the church. The bride is clothed in fine linen, and those fine linens, according to verse 8, are the righteous acts of the saints. That's you and me. The church, the saints. You see, I do not believe the church will go through the tribulation, the time of God's wrath, because we have not been appointed to wrath, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus paid the price for us already. I believe prior to the tribulation, the Lord will call his bride to himself in what we refer to as the rapture of the church, and we will be caught up into heaven with him. And then when he returns, we will be with him in our glorified bodies, clothed in fine linen, riding alongside Jesus on white horses. The New Testament epistle of Jude attests, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, That word 10,000s in the Greek isn't a literal number, but a description of a great myriad. The NIV translates it thousands upon thousands. It's describing an innumerable number of saints that are coming with the Lord when he returns. The Lord is coming back, and he's coming back with his saints by his side. That's you and me. What an amazing day that will be as Jesus Christ comes back he wipes out all the forces of evil, okay, the Antichrist. He binds Satan for a thousand years. Jesus Christ will rule and reign upon the earth. And it will be a time of great peace and prosperity where all will worship the Lord. It will be a glorious day, a day that we should look forward to with great anticipation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity to get into uh, this teaching of yours, uh, the Olivet Discourse, and talking about future events and fulfilled prophecy. Lord, um, Lord I think our big takeaway, Lord, is we want to we heed your word. We want to listen to your word. We want to know what your word says. People of the first century did not listen to your word. They did not heed your word, and it cost them their lives, Lord. Lord, we don't want to make the same mistake. We want to be yielded to you. We want to be yielded to your word, to your plan for our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you just give us a hunger for your word, an excitement for your word, and an anticipation as we see things in your word that are starting to unfold before our very own eyes, things that haven't been the case for the last 2,500 years all of a sudden are. Lord, we see elements of these things coming to pass. I pray that it would stir in us an excitement for your coming. I believe that there's going to come a day that you will come in the clouds where you will stop and you will call us to yourself. We will be caught up to you and join with you in the clouds and then we will forever be by your side, Lord. Lord, we long for that day. I know myself, (laughs) Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Lord, make our hearts ready for yours. Soften them. Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight of the riches that await us and the hope that we have in you. Lord, as we wait, as you tarry, strengthen us by your Spirit that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.